This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Coming up tonight on Bite Into It, I'm in studio with Kent Humphreys. Welcome back, Kent. It's been a few years since we've had you with us. It has. Long-time listener, uh, sometimes <laughs> co-host. <laughs> iOS developing all around the world. Correct. And uh, Dan Salmon. Hello. Thank you for pushing our buttons this evening. Coming up later this evening, we're going to be speaking to Dr. Arthur Shelley, who is a knowledge management guru. He'll explain what knowledge management is. Yes, please. Yeah, that would be good. <laughs> <laughs> we're looking forward to that. Tony Wu and Dan Pugh will be joining us from WePloy, who are a startup that have recently got a lot of round one funding and they're in the recruitment space, which is pretty hot right now. Mm, it should be an interesting chat. Yeah, stick around. If you're, if you're part of that gig economy, you might want to stay tuned and get involved with this with uh, WePloy. So in news this week, we wanted to call out it's Privacy Awareness Week. Did you know that? I, I do now. Yeah, they've been keeping <laughs> it pretty private apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it's, it's being hosted on the um, Office for the Australian Information Commissioner's page. So you can head to the oaic.gov.au and check out Poor 2017. It's kind of cute. They need a cat logo, but it's kind of cute. Um, so Australians are very concerned about their online privacy. We get a lot of questions into the show from from listeners about what they can be doing and, and what they should concern themselves with. But many are apparently not making the most of the options available to protect themselves. Uh, the people running Privacy Awareness Week also ran a survey of Australian computer users to find out um, some of their opinions and computer use habits. Uh, 69% of us are apparently more concerned about our online privacy than they were five years ago, but 65% do not read privacy policies. I think, I think that's the really key one there where we've got uh, government making sure that we have all this privacy information available to consumers and then classic lazy consumers, <laughs> we're just sitting here going, I'm not reading that. That's, that, that's going to take me minutes to read. <laughs> and someone will write an article about it yeah. if these terms are very unfriendly. It, and that's how that, I'll yeah. find out that they are. Six yeah. months down the track. That's right. Um, I, I can't remember what the stat was, but there was also a statistic around um, users changing the default settings on social media. Yes. And so apparently we don't do that regularly enough, adjusting our privacy settings or clearing our browsing history. I think that's another one of those things where we, we kind of trust that um, software companies have our back. And as an ethical software developer, I've got your back. But there are some that are maybe you know, don't have the same idea of privacy. You're gesturing and, towards and your Mr. Salmon. Yeah. No, no. <laughs> that's, that's purely coincidental. Yes, yeah, sure. Coincidental. Sure, sure. <laughs> so Australians think that the biggest risks to privacy today are online services, including social media, 32%, ID fraud and theft, 19%, and data breaches and security, 17%. Which is kind of interesting. I'd be I'd be curious to hear how even a, a general Australian on the street who didn't work in technology would define some of those things. Mm. But many of us are uncomfortable with businesses sharing personal information with other organisations. I'm I, and um, one one stat here I'm seeing, um, which I'm finding really interesting, is ninety three percent of us of Australians are concerned with about organisations sending personal information overseas. Mm. Now, what are, what is it about the overseas aspect of these organisations in a globalised economy that makes it so unpalatable that that information would be uh, would be disseminated, particularly when we are giving all of our most personal information to two of the biggest American companies in the world um, in Google and Facebook. Mm. So 
I, I, I wonder where, where that kind of um, parochialism, I suppose, comes from. I, I wonder if you can look at it from another direction, from a positive direction, and say that maybe there's a lot of faith in the Australian government and our privacy laws. So people have a lot of trust in Australians protecting our privacy. But as soon as we outsource that data somewhere outside of the country, there's there's a bit more uncertainty. I think there's something here too about the perception of the value of that data and that the value within our market, might they might perceive that to be very low, that they might be a small fry within our economy. Mm. But compared to maybe if, if work's being outsourced to a third world country, they might say, well... You know, anything is um, is a lot to somebody there relative, so they're, that maybe they're aware of their their economic privilege. It's kind of it's kind of uh, interesting. Can can I leave us with one statistic? Twenty five percent of those surveyed uh, regret a post they've made on social media. <laughs> only I'm shocked. Only I'm shocked that's so low. <laughs> it should be a hundred. <laughs> yeah, um, um, unless they think twenty-five of the ones that I left up. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that you can still find. Yeah. Look, we would love to see people looking up Privacy Awareness Week. There's a lot of good resources online giving you tips on things that you can do to beef up your privacy. You might be in good hands already, or you might just need to, you know, follow a few simple steps just to to look out for yourself a bit more. I recently found out that um, Yui, part of the reason why they're uh, such a great value insurer is because their model is tied to um, selling your data and because, you know, they give you uh, more friendly insurance rates uh, because they take more points of data from the consumers that gives them more data to sell. So it's, it's really a fascinating business model, but something I'm not sure that all consumers are, are aware of. Mm. It's, it's been a, a recurring theme on Bite Into It that uh, nothing is free. Mm. So we, we get a lot of free services on the internet, but we're paying for them somehow. Absolutely. Mm. It's a classic example. Think before you click, I accept. <laughs> now, we absolutely couldn't do the show this week without mentioning WannaCry. Oh Hashtag WannaCry. So, you know, it's the it's the malware that you've been hearing about all week. So much that you want to cry. <laughs> the news broke late last week and we started hearing stories over the weekend and it was really like watching um, an adventure story unfold because you had a hack you know, everyone's talking about hackers. There's a hack out there and it's attacking computers and then there's a hero that comes in and then he turns out to be a 22-year-old, you know, security researcher. So it was a, a very captivating story, but also quite frightening for a lot of people. Let's yeah. let's try and debunk some of this story, there's, Kent. There's there's so much to this story, but I guess if we start, um, we, the, the term ransomware has been thrown around a lot. Uh, and I think... When, when you just read that, if, if you're not particularly tech savvy and you're not sure what these terms mean, it can be a bit intimidating. But ransomware is really just a fancy way of saying, um, we've hacked your computer and we're going to try and ask you for money in order to unhack, in quotes, your computer. So, you know, it, it sounds like some super technical term, but it, it, it is same as a lot of other viruses where they're um, messing around with your files. Only in this case, they offer allegedly that if you pay them some money, they will reverse the changes to your files. The thing about um, this WannaCry ransomware, there's there's no hard evidence that they are actually reversing the, the encryption that they perform to your files. So basically you start up your computer, you can't access your files. There's a screen saying, if you pay us um, this much, 300 pounds or something like this. What, yeah, if you pay us this much money, we will unlock your files and you'll be able to use your computer as normal. But uh, researchers have discovered that... that the way they've they've been handling these payments is manual, so there's no actual 
um, automatic system that will decrypt your files when you pay. So the chance of someone who is a ransomware hacker creator type they're probably not going to be terribly bothered about unlocking your files. So your customer you're, you're, service, not the <laughs> You're saying that they're not ethical and they're giving us back the thing that they've stolen. There's no from customer the helpline in, oh. in, with the ransomware. So I, I would highly recommend if, if anyone has been infected, um, the first thing is update your version of Windows. This only affects Windows, and you really, 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 really should should update the security. And it patches. was an old version of Windows too. Yeah, uh, it, it's affected XP, um, Windows Server 2013, mm. Windows, I think Windows 8 was okay, but Windows 7... So some of the Windows major 9. issues came into play where there were patches released for new versions of Windows, but older versions were essentially unpatchable. And yeah, this is this is a really interesting sort of angle on the story that we have all these um, old boxes sitting in big, big companies or the NHS in, in Great Britain, as we saw, they were quite vulnerable to this attack and it's it's that notion that we have a computer that's running it's working let's not muck around with it if it's working and maybe we don't have the money to muck around with it if you're the nhs resources Mm. or the priority Mm. yeah exactly and and we really need to be careful about security because it's a real thing and it can really impact human lives as we've seen yeah uh there is speculation that the um nsa created uh the tool to exploit this particular vulnerability. So they discovered a vulnerability, they created a tool to exploit it. They kept this to themselves to to use um, when they themselves uh, had a data breach. This tool became available to the world. Yeah, this this is where again it's like a it's like a film or something. Like it you, is. you couldn't you couldn't write this stuff. So uh, a group known as the Shadow Brokers um, collated a whole lot of the NSA tools that had been leaked. And uh, about a month ago, they released that online. And basically, they made it super easy for anyone to get access to all these tools. And then the authors of WannaCry essentially packaged that up, localized it in a whole lot of languages so it would have the most impact and set it out into the world. There's a real combination of um, of sophistication and naivety in the, the running of this We, we have to talk program. about the kill switch. Yeah, so... Uh, built into this code. I mean, it's amazing that they made it available in many different languages. That shows Mm -hmm. a a real lot of planning. Uh, But then they also put in a kill switch, which was a random URL that had been thrown, you know, buried in the code. And what would happen is every deployment of this, this worm would do a quick check and see if that domain existed. And if it didn't find that it existed, you know, great. We'll we'll keep going as usual. Mm -hmm. And so basically, uh, someone, you know, was reverse engineering this code or, or accessing this code and they discovered what this URL was, a, a 22-year-old... Well, he just saw the URL yeah. and went, I'll go visit that and see what's there. It, nothing was there. Nothing was there. He registered the URL <laughs> and now any any computer that, it's, that is infected tries to check if that URL exists. It does exist, therefore the malware just stops. Stops, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's such a, like a, a low-tech solution for, yeah. for a and, worldwide virus. And even more interesting, the, the group deploying, you know, you would suspect the people deploying the worm in the first place, then caught up to that and redeployed without the kill switch. So it continued on after this. Amazing. Now we'd like to welcome to studio Dr Arthur Shelley, but I think it's okay to call you Arthur from here on. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, 
Arthur is a knowledge management consultant. He's an author and he's a leader with over 30 years experience improving information outcomes for organisations working across many industries. Somehow he finds time to produce Creative Melbourne, an event which celebrates creative thinking. He also created the Organisational Zoo, a survival guide to workplace behaviour. Welcome to studio, Arthur. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, full disclaimer, Arthur's a bit of a mentor of mine. I uh, work in the knowledge management space, so I want to put that out there. Uh, but when you discover someone this interesting, you just have to have them on your community radio show. <laughs> so, Arthur, could you tell us a little bit about your background and, and how you've become an, a knowledge manager? I think everyone's on a journey of becoming something. You know, you, you start with one thing. I started... My professional career as a scientist, I got into uh, quality management early on, um, which gives you a broader picture of looking at businesses and how they operate. Uh, Then I went to do projects around quality management and then one thing leads to another, leads to another and everything is influenced by behaviour and and knowledge and here we are. When you say behaviour and knowledge, is that kind of the human aspect of an organisation. Is, is that kind of what that means? Or? Yeah, I mean, knowledge management is, uh, the way I define it at least, is, is uh, a very holistic thing. I mean, how can you ever make a decision without knowledge? How can you know uh, what to do next without knowing something about what you're doing? Um, some people see knowledge as just the technical part, you know, mm-hmm. some people think content management and, and computer systems as knowledge management. Documentation. Documentation, but it's a very small part. You know, human relationships, uh, you will share something you know with someone you trust, but mm-hmm. you, you won't tell someone that you don't trust. So the whole social interaction, and this is where social media has become very interesting as well, because people are starting to share things with people that they don't know at all, which is beyond sort of normal behaviour. So behaviour, social, knowledge, uh, technology, they're all very heavily integrated with each other. So we work um, in an industry where, you know, in the city of Melbourne, they talk about how we've, we're really dominated by, by knowledge industries and knowledge businesses. And increasingly in the technology sphere, we're hearing about data-driven decision-making and data-driven organisations. And there's many startups trying to disrupt things by saying, we have more data than the taxi drivers or we have more da- data than, than the health professionals. And so we're going to come in and make improvements. Um, what is there that a knowledge manager sees that's beyond data? Yeah, that, that, that's a really good question. I mean, if you look at um, some of the more traditional sort of definitions of, of knowledge management, they've got this old hierarchy, which is, you know, sort of data and then, you know, sort of interpreted data becomes information. Information applied typically by people converts it to knowledge. You, you start to then know what to do about that. And some people put wisdom as a hat on top of all of that. But I see it much more sort of intermixed. Uh, um, you know, I wrote a, a forward to a book a couple of years ago that was on uh, big data. And I'm saying, yeah, look, the big data is really good. What computers are, are good at doing is is finding patterns in data. What humans are really good about is is about finding the missing piece in the patterns. So big data is very good at, you know, giving you the, those patterns, but it won't find what's not there. Uh, um, and a human, you look at most of the big companies in the world, the, the, the half of the top 10 at the moment are companies that didn't exist 10 or so years ago, and that's because they fi- found a gap that doesn't exist yet. So, you know, that's knowledge to me. Information is about what exists. Knowledge is finding what does not yet exist and co-creating to move forward. 
So is is there a sense that the the knowledge is there? It's it's inside the organization, and your job is to kind of tease it out and make it easy to find and make it flow and kind of yeah, get this river of knowledge flowing over everyone. Y- yes, it is. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I talk a lot in in Knowledge Succession, uh, um, uh, my book about. The, getting the flow of knowledge and getting particularly flow of knowledge between between people, um, but more importantly than that, it's it's not just what you already know; it's taking what you already know and adapting it to new contexts, adapting it to new things. You know, I started my career as a scientist, but what I l- learned as a scientist is how to learn and how to uh, not just discover what's known but to create something that doesn't yet exist. Mm-hmm. So it's a combination of both. Uh, the more you know, the more you, gaps you can see, the more stuff that you have that you can adapt to something else. Mm-hmm. And, and the future is about, you know, what we do tomorrow and beyond, not just what we are now. So, so is technology impacting this, this field in a positive way or a negative way or a bit of both? Or? Um, definitely both. Mm-hmm. Um, the the good thing about um, technology is that it enables us to process a lot more information, uh, or a lot more data, uh, more quickly, and and to see patterns. I mean, you imagine as a human being trying to you know sort of analyze all of the shopping patterns of of, of people throughout the world. Mm-hmm. I mean, you, but a computer can do that you know real time and and give you an answer. You know, you log into you know, some site and it's already sort of patterned you and looked at and then it's proposing things that it thinks you will buy mm-hmm. based on your prior browsing, etc. As a human, you can't do that. However, uh, um, as, as a human, you can build a relationship. Mm-hmm. You think uh, people do pe- business with people, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, technology enables a transaction. Human to human enables a relationship. Yeah, I, I like that analogy that technology, uh, nine times out of ten, the apps and the software that we use, it's just facilitating humans doing what they've always done in a, a way with less friction, essentially. That's that's kind of what it comes down to. Yeah, I mean, y- you're absolutely right in that, you know, the, the technology, um, you know, even things like, you know, dating applications. I mean, how do you, uh, traditionally, you know, human beings would go and socialise at the Saturday night dance and they would come mm-hmm. to meet each other. Um, human beings are too busy these days. They're doing so many things. They don't have those spaces in which to socialise, to connect with, you know, sort of uh, whether it's, it's it's a business partner or a life partner or a soulmate. So, you know, what the technology has enabled you to do is to connect with a whole bunch of people that you wouldn't otherwise run into in your, in your day-to-day life. But you still have to go and meet the person, right? And, and so is the the kind of the negative space where technology is maybe um, affecting this area, is, is that in the place where we have so much information but we confuse it for knowledge? We kind of go, look, I've got, I've got Google, I've got Wikipedia, I have everything I could ever need. I'm, I'm knowledgeful. I, I, absolutely. <laughs> uh, um, you, 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 you've, you've nailed it there. The, um, in the end, it's all just information and it's a, it's a perspective. And we all know that there's a huge amount of uh, content out there which just isn't right. Mm-hmm. Um, um, talking with Jimmy Wales a number of years ago, uh, um, you know, who created uh, Wikipedia, he, uh, he said that, you know, um, one of his biggest challenges is that, uh, you know, you can have your page, uh, you know, theory green and I can have my page theory red and, you know, we can have our own pages and write that. But the problem is, you know, I think that you're wrong, so I come and mess with your page, mm-hmm. and you think that I'm wrong, so you mess with mine. <laughs> so, you know, a lot of the time, people are, uh, uh, you know, 
almost vandalising other people's pages instead of, you know, just sharing what they know. So it becomes, you know, competitive for the, for, for the space and it, so much for uh, open sort of freedom of... Uh, uh, Ideas and yeah, yeah. information. Yeah. The idea is great, mm-hmm. but the human behaviour built around that can sometimes damage it. Mm-hmm. Amazing. Um, We definitely saw that play out with um, lots of the the culture wars on Wikipedia and uh, the difficulties they had managing their editors and and the different, you know, factions that that built up even amongst the editor community. Very tricky. So when we think about that, it brings us to how can knowledge management be standardised? How can you standardise something that's going to be different everywhere? Yeah, I mean, that, that's really tricky, isn't it? And, and, you know, this takes me back to my quality days, you know, sort of 25 or 30 years ago where people saying, how can you standardise quality? You know, the quality of something is very different. The expectations is very different. And it's a really good question. And, and um, you can't standardise knowledge per se. But what you can do is standardise the ways in which people understand what knowledge is and where it comes from and how you can use it. And, you know, when, you know, the first ISO standards come out, you know, the ISO 9000 uh, series of standards, which are now sort of just embedded and accepted by very many organisations around the world, um, the same will become true of uh, the knowledge management standard. Um, uh, Right now, a lot of people think KM is about information and a lot of people think it's about data. Some people think it's about content. You know, there's so many different opinions on what knowledge actually is. Well, the standard says, well, this is what knowledge is and those other things, they're important too, but they're something different. So the standard is more about understanding the wider perspective. So when I say the standard, uh, ISO, the international uh, body that creates standards Standards. for for a whole range of things, um, are, are, are trying to get common agreement on how you can best leverage knowledge and to recognise that knowledge is related to information, it is related to data, it is related to culture. What, what we're doing right now, we're having this big argument on, on the, the Standards Committee about how much to write about culture in this standard. And culture is another thing you can't standardise, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, but you need to know that, that it is an interdependent element of, of knowledge. It's great to know that you're an Australian voice representing um, KM at that ISO committee level. It's kind of exciting for us. So you have helped build Creative Melbourne, which was a really fascinating conference held earlier this year. Um, One of your speakers was uh, uh, really experienced in knowledge management, but also very high up in the the Goddard Space Flight Centre for NASA. It was fascinating hearing where knowledge management skills could take you. Um, But, you know, could you tell us a bit more about Creative Melbourne and what you hope to achieve with those events? Uh, Absolutely. Um, You you may be pleased to know that uh, Juan uh, will be back again next year. Wonderful. Uh, So he's coming back again. So Dr. Juan Roman from uh, NASA. He's a a good friend of mine. There's there's a number of of us from around the world that are really trying to combine knowledge, innovation, uh, um, creative thinking... And the only way to, well, not the only way, there's many ways, but, you know, we think the ultimate way to really do this is to get people from a range of different places in the room interacting with each other. So we had, you know, Cirque du Soleil and the Institute of Knowledge and Innovation and NASA and, you know, people from a whole range of different fields very deliberately in the room together playing games. Uh, and and but, but playing learning games with a purpose. Mm-hmm. And so we're building this community and, and actually every week, since uh, that event in February, there's been a uh, community 
attendees who uh, have been continuing through social media to talk with each other and uh, video conference and, and we're already got a plan for what we're doing next year. So it'll be on again. Um, NASA and Cirque du Soleil have already said that they will be here uh, and we're looking for a range of uh, other speakers uh, as well. Well, not really speakers, but, you know, facilitators. Thinkers. <laughs> Thinkers and facilitators. Yeah. It, what we're trying to achieve with this is to get people to embed creativity into everyday life uh, and, and professional life and, and home life, you know, to start thinking differently. Uh, human beings are limited by what they already know. You know, you, you make assumptions about how the world works. Uh, you, you, you make a lot of decisions auto, auto, automatically. Um, but that's based on what you know rather than what you could come to know. Arthur, I feel like we could talk with you all night, but instead we'll have to settle for having you back um, another time and hearing more about future events and, uh, and putting calls out for speakers and that sort of thing. Before we let you go, would you like to let people know where they could find out more about knowledge management, perhaps uh, in a book of yours? Yeah, of course. Uh, always happy to. to um, so just very quickly, uh, I know you have your other guests uh, right here in eager and... Um, uh, my book, Knowledge Succession, is available at Business Expert Press, uh, uh, an American publisher. Um, if you Google me, you'll find uh, uh, references to that. Organisational Zoo has its own website, organisationalzoo.com, uh, um, spelt with a Z, the American way, um, and intelligentanswers.com.au, so any of those places. And I'm on LinkedIn and Facebook and Twitter, at uh, uh, Metaforage, so any of those places you'll find me. Yeah, I think following the links through Twitter is a very good thing, but it's, this, is, uh, this has been our chat with Dr Arthur Shelley. Thank you so much for your time this evening. My great pleasure, thank you. Thanks. And we'd love to welcome to studio Tony Wu and Dan Pill. Welcome, guys. Thanks for having us. Good evening. Tony and Dan are both from WePloy. Tony is the head of growth and Dan is the marketing and community manager. And uh, founded in mid-2016 by Nick La and Vince Long, WePloy is an on-demand recruitment platform connecting employers with freelance workers. We'd love to hear more, guys. So um, I wondered, you know, considering you've come in to disrupt recruitment, uh, what's your view on how current recruiters might be failing to meet the needs of uh, employers and employees? Yeah, it's a, it's a common question we get asked. Um, and when we developed this actual platform, we really looked at um, how do we ensure that we really you know, disrupt it and, and, and provide a much more user-positive experience, right? So rather than creating something that was just a little bit better, we wanted to create something that was infinitely better. Um, so there's multiple ways, and it really depends on how long I can speak, about uh, the current recruitment model. But um, I actually come from recruitment myself and, and saw it firsthand. And that's why when um, Nick and Vince talked to me about this project, it really just click straight away. It's a, it's a platform that we have been able to build where we're not only able to help clients or employers um, solve a staffing requirement or, or provide a more positive experience, but then on the flip side, also provide a much more positive experience to the candidate. Um, so being able to look at both sides rather than you know currently what is more focused towards purely a, a client-focused market. I think that's a that's a really key thing to successful technology companies that we see where you're you're helping both sides of the market. Yeah. So you're not just trying to undercut one side yeah. and then as soon as someone else comes in with a lower lower price on that side, you've got nothing to offer. I Correct. think I think it's it's really great to identify a market where you're 
attacking from both sides. Yeah, yeah, it's it's uh, it's true, and and with technology, it really came down to it because you know I was doing essentially this role manually, um, and I had a team working with me, and and uh, an example was basically there was a, a girl in my team who was doing about thirty jobs a month, which in recruitment world is is very good, you know, um, and and there's nothing wrong with that. But then we realized that actually with technology, we can do a thousand jobs in a second. Um, and that's the capabilities that at the moment, what we've been able to build where no human recruiter can actually do what our platform does. And you're absolutely right. You know, Looking at, at, at both sides of the market, we've been able to sacrifice a little bit on our end because we're essentially technology. We're not a recruitment company. We don't house you know 70 to 100 recruiters. We, we have a small team and we're essentially built up of tech and, and uh, admin and operations, right? So what we've been able to do is simple things, you know, what, what, what one of the missions for us or the main mission is to really change the way that people look at employment. Um, and so one of the things is we, we decided from the get-go was how do we ensure that our candidates get looked after and really nurtured? And this is something that I saw a lot, not just in um, just the, the recruitment sector in, in a whole, is that candidates and, and the community, and this is why Dan's role is so important, is that he really looks at how do we nurture and grow this community? And so one of the things we looked at was um, setting the bar from the, from the beginning rather than putting them on a subcontracting or um, some, some uh, model which you know, other on-demand platforms do, we decided to take on a lot of the risk and by doing that, we actually are now able to set the rate so that our candidates get paid 10% above the industry rate. And you know, it's one way about just trying to acknowledge what they're doing and how do we help them succeed, right? Yeah. So a user of Weploy is needs to sort of be a, a private contractor or, or that's kind of handled no, through you guys? Yeah, yeah. So okay. we, we looked at the whole process and just basically streamlined. Um, to be honest, we, we, we looked at the recruitment process and just automated the whole thing. Um, and so as a, as a user, or we call them a employee of ours, um, <laughs> yeah, they, they get onboarded and they become essentially an employee of ours and, and they go out and, and, and work and represent us. And that's why for us, it's, it's really important that we build almost a, a family community because they're representatives of our brand. Yeah. So it's incredibly refreshing to hear a technology company talking about people in the gig economy as employees when we hear so many bad news stories about the gig economy and running in circles around themselves trying not to use the word employee mm. to get around labor laws mm. now you know australia's got a great history of um of kind of working on on labor relations industrial relations and um and getting some basic benefits for employees and with the increasing move to gig style working um you know how have you looked at what other people are doing in the market and and set a course through that yeah so we really wanted to set and, and really become uh, the leaders of the market, um, which is things like, for example, you know, we're the first to provide police checks as a standard, you know. Um, but really it was about, there's a, you're right, there's a lot of on-demand platforms or other sort of um, these style of uh, gig economy platforms that um, put on a, a worker and don't necessarily... Um, I guess look after them, right? They they're subcontracted. You know, I know some of them right now are going through, you know, um, you know, very expensive law cases because they've been paying them under minimum wage. Um, so or we hear about people, you know, being hit on their bike and their bike delivery people, yeah. and there's no health services built into to their you know work. Yeah, and it goes back to what Kendall was saying, like as in how um, there's they're not looking after both sides. They're only focused on one side, and that's what we're trying to change. We're trying to bring value to both sides with the employer side and also the employee side and we've made a um, strong stance of we don't see ourselves working in the job we actually don't accept that employer onto our platform 
I, th- I think that's a really key thing. I really like, well, I th- it's an interesting point when you said we don't see ourselves as a recruitment agency because that line has been used by a lot of uh, mm. successful startups, you know, Airbnb, <laughs> we're not a hotel, Uber, we're not a taxi company. Mm. And I think if uh, often that line is used in a negative way where you're saying, no, 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 we don't have the responsibility. Facebook is not a media company. They have no responsibility mm. to, mm, to be, not. you know, thinking about what they're doing to the media industry. But I think here you're, you're saying we're not a recruitment agency, we're the evolution of, or we're, we're the thing that comes after that. Yeah, yeah, and this is where it's like, um, we, we really wanna look at disrupting the sector, because you're right, it's, it's, you know, some people can see us as almost an innovative or new age version of a recruitment agency. Um, the one of the things I, I realized within, when I was working in the sector, um, and look, don't get me wrong, there are some really great uh, agencies out there, we actually partner with, with some of them, mm-hmm. um, but there are some that are just really giving it essentially a bad name, where they, mm-hmm. they don't care about the candidate, they put the candidate to the lowest possible uh, rate so that they can take home the biggest market it's all about the commission, right? So um, from our perspective, it was really about how do we look at changing that perspective? How do we give them more care? And how do we work with clients so that they can um, provide, I guess, or or recruit better? So one of the things we're looking at is currently in the industry, a good, or or, uh, the ones I saw, a really good recruiter was not necessarily a recruiter, but more so a salesperson, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And they go and speak to a client and they sell essentially through fear, right? Whereas um, in, in, in our line of work or the type of jobs we're providing in that transactional market, um, we're removing the requirement and automating that so that recruiters can go back to being recruiters and working with businesses on understanding human capital and HR policies, mm-hmm. less about oh, how much margin can I squeeze out of this company, you know? I think that that's such an interesting point. In I was working in the UK for a while and there it was almost like recruiters were split into two mm-hmm. categories. One was the people who who got that the employees are the or you know the potential mm-hmm. hires. Mm-hmm. That's the value add and mm-hmm. and they would foster relationships and actually, you know, the the people they contracted they would like them. Mm-hmm. They would actually like yeah. seeing each other and having lunch together. And then there was the other category which is just you're just a number. Uh, I just want you because I'm, you know, I need to hit my targets, and it's, yeah. it's exactly that that old mentality you're talking about, which just feels so dated to me. It, it is, and it's ripe for 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 disruption, and and this is where, like, at the moment, we speak with um, our clients, and, and I was, uh, it's quite bizarre because, you know, when I was a recruiter, I had to basically knock down the door to get in front of that. Mm-hmm. Um, the client, right? Whereas now the relationships we're forming with clients, it's, it's on such a different level. I was almost a little bit not used to it in the beginning, you know, because, um, you know, people understand recruitment is a very big part of a business. It's a very important, like human capital is one of the major important um, facets of any business, right? So it's about cutting through the cell and go, how do we actually just recruit better, you know? Um, and also to add to that, like as in, we're not just, um, I've noticed as well, being out there, we're not just helping them find um, staff on a temporary basis, but we're going in there helping them change their culture. Mm, mm. And so that was like a really powerful like moment. I had. I was like, wow, we're actually kind of like helping people, which is really rad. So let's talk about uh, like step back a bit and talk mm. about the stage that your business is at. You've been running a pilot in Sydney mm. and um, and I presume Melbourne as well. Yep, yep. Melbourne's and live. Yep. Melbourne's live. Yep. yep. And uh, Melbourne was in beta for a while. Yep. So your numbers are quite tremendous. Um, tell us a little bit about the numbers that have gone through there. 
Yeah, so um, we really, uh, we did a, I guess, a private beta for a while in Melbourne. We're, I guess, publicly live for the past seven weeks in, mm. in Melbourne. We've been in operations for, it feels like dog years in startup <laughs> world. Um, but I think it's been about, what is it, seven months, something like this. Yeah. Um, and look, from our perspective, like like uh, we're saying, we're really looking at how do we engage with our um, our users and speak to them rather than speak at them, you mm. know, and, and how do we provide in some sort of empowerment, you know, one of the things that we're really focused on is how do we make it so from an uh, employee perspective it's it's um it's working to live rather than living to work mm. right and so when we speak about that type of i guess conversation and and looking at the markets and trying to prove and break the barriers we've been able to get a huge flow of of candidates that go hey that's me you know one of the things that we looked at um i, I give you an example was um uh, we have a uh, uni students graduates and returning to work moms right um when I was in agency, those are pretty much the two demographics we never wanted to essentially speak <laughs> to because they're, they're a square peg for a round hole, right? Whereas in our case, we've looked at the vetting and we've, we've utilized innovation and technology to break them down into data. So when they go to that job, they're not looking at, um, they're not sending in a CV and doing an interview. They're letting their work do the talking. And when they go in and do that, it, it, they're just essentially, I guess, redefining the assumptions um, of what the employer thought this de- demographic may have been. That's so interesting so do you think that you maybe have had a new approach to addressing unconscious bias yes 100 percent, 100 percent. this is where like uh we we have um people um there's a there's a we play of ours um on the on the platform um and she's from kazakhstan um now when i first saw her cv you know pronouncing her last name is 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 tough um but when I got to know her, she actually um, brokered, uh, she was a project manager back in Kazakhstan in a renewable energy company and brokered one of the largest deals in, in, in the Middle East. Um, and you know the type of work she's been looking for, she's here doing her masters um, and she's been looking for work and she can't get any admin work. And she's super overqualified, but she just can't because essentially things like discrimination and bias comes into play. Mm. It's fascinating. It re- recalls a story that we heard from Rick Chen who uh, started up Possible. Oh, yeah. And you know he talks about um, meeting uh, a creative woman who uh, was on maternity leave and coming back from that and was having real trouble just getting some funding up for a creative project and that and that's when the concept of possible came up because he he thought that anyone who heard the story could see the value but mm. um, you know she didn't tick the right boxes that people wanted to see ticked for you know their risk averse kind of investment model or whatever mm. it was mm. so you've spoken a lot about the not living to work the you know the working to live type mm. of thing we speculate a lot about the future of work here mm. And we're seeing a lot of changes. Um, the gig economy is only part of that. Mm. How do you see that experience changing for both um, employees based on your beaters and the feedback you've been getting and, and for employers? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where what we're trying to do is look at empowerment and removing fear. So, you know, my, my missus actually, she uh, works at one of the larger uh, corporates at the moment. She wants to quit and, and um, or, or she was looking at, at pursuing a, a career in myotherapy. That's her passion, right? And she was like, I don't know what I should do around this, you know? And, and what's essentially holding her back is the fear. So what we're looking at in as far as what we see from our stance and what we're trying to create is a, a global currency where basically with using one app, you're able to move around the world, remove the fear of what you're wanting to do 
or, or remove the fear of what's holding you back from achieving what you're wanting to do. You know, we have a we have one employee um, where she came over from Perth, um, small city, landed in Melbourne, um, a science and engineering background, and then in the first week she worked at a startup firm, um, PR a, agency, a PR yeah. agency, and uh, and a corporate organisation. None of which she would have done at all and then when speaking to her going hey what's your you know feedback etc she turned around she goes it, it made me feel connected in a lonely city and that's the kind of stuff that we're trying to do is that if someone goes you know moves around the world or chases their dreams they can achieve that through something like this and that's how we see the future of work working and, and changing the way that people actually look at employment so you mentioned uni students as well and we know that it's tough out there for mm. young people these days. Even young people, they're more qualified than ever when they're getting into the job market, but they're having trouble and they're experiencing higher rates of unemployment than the rest of the working mm. population. Um, how does someone like that go within your WePloy structure when they maybe don't have the runs on the board, they haven't broken a massive energy deal in Kazakhstan? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What? talk about Max's story. Yeah. Um, go for it, yeah. No. Um, yeah, sure. So, I mean... We had a, a, a situation where basically um, it was the, one of our first jobs that we ever we ever did in our beta, um, private beta, and we were working with a, a company of ours, um, a we player of ours called Hot Dog, right? And they're a hypergrowth health startup and and a quite a complex environment. Um, and we had a guy called um, Max, right? So he basically came on board. He was doing a he was doing his masters at the time, or um, and basically couldn't find work at all, right? Um, just struggling, and and then because he doesn't have the experience you know he has his resume doesn't say all the right things I guess um, and he went through our process and through our process we break them down through data and we essentially rank them through data you know at the moment um, we can look at their cognitive adaptability and these kind of things so what we're really looking at is if we put this person in an unknown situation how fast do they adapt not you know what is your work experience and where have you worked right mm -hmm. so that's what we're really interested in because the type of work we're providing is it's it's support type work right so we sent him in and around 11 o'clock i got a call from the line manager and he was like i need to speak to you about max and we're like oh no what what's happened this is the first job no it's you know and he goes no no i need, I need to know more about how you've onboarded how or like tell me a little bit more about max because he's just smashed through all the work wow. um and i go look i'm gonna send you his cv um tell me if it's the same person and he goes this person's never worked before. Like, it's not the same person. This person um, has actually finished all the work and normally we have to go through, um, like they use, they, at the time they were using a, an agency once a week. Um, and then he's like, he's done this in half the time. And then he's like, this, this can't be right. So that's where we started to be able to go, you know what, through data, we can start to see how impressive these people are. That's amazing. I wish we had time for more of these <laughs> stories, but I, I do highly recommend that um, people out there who are interested in freelancing, check out WePloy and uh, we'll, we'll tweet out links and everything. Tony and Dan, thank you so much. Thanks, Thanks for, for having, having us. us. And we'd just like to cover one event that's coming up. So registrations have just opened for Web Directions Code 2017. It's going to be running from August 3, uh, 3rd to the 4th. And uh, early bird registrations are open. Now, it is a pricey conference, but a worthwhile conference. You're talking the $1,000 mark for, you know, your, your two-day participation and things, and there's a few different tiers of things that you can get into as well. Um, but that is the early bird savings price. And some of the guests here are tremendous. <coughs> um, Sorry, Kent, have you got that in front yeah, of you at the moment? Yeah, uh, Brian Telson. Uh, Telson? Am I pronouncing that right? Brian Terryson. Sorry, my eyesight is, is poor. Uh, <laughs> 
Vanessa's just having a little fit over here. Uh, um, yeah, Brian Terrison, the, um, the excuse me, editor of the JavaScript uh, specification and long-standing member of TC39, uh, which is the committee standardizing JavaScript. Um, he's also a key developer of JavaScript engine in the Edge browser, so uh, the, we're going to find out a lot about JavaScript. We also have Val Head, who's one of the foremost experts in animation and the web anywhere in the world, uh, written extensively on the subject. She's advised companies like Shopify and Automatic who created WordPress and spoken all over the world. She, uh, she was going to uh, survey the full spectrum of animation options from CSS to React Motion and show uh, which are suited for implementing state transitions, showing data, uh, animating illustrations or making animations responsive, which sounds absolutely fascinating. Uh, so, yeah, yeah if, you're in, if you're in front-end code... Um or, you know, web-based programming or, or other areas like that, excuse my voice, then it's a really worthwhile event to check out. We want to thank you for tuning in this evening and a big thank you to our guests, Dr Arthur Shelley, Tony Wu and Dan Pill. We've been bite into it. We'll be back next Wednesday evening. Do stay tuned for the International Pop Underground up next with Anthony Carew. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.